Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The British Constitution, according to Gladstone, presumes more boldly than any other the good sense and the good faith of those who work it. This is effectively an early encapsulation of the good chap theory of government, made most widely known by historian Peter Hennessy. Gladstone's contemporary historian John Dahlberg Acton would disagree. Great men are almost always bad men, he wrote in a letter. Boris Johnson was the quintessential example of a bad man testing the good chap theory. It exposed the weak spots, the rickety relationships, the creaking hinges in our constitutional setup. My guest today is a professor of politics at King's, the editor of the Constitution Review, and senior advisor to the Constitution Society. He is also the co-author, with the aforementioned Peter Hennessy, of a new book, The Bonfire of the Decencies, Repairing and Restoring the British Constitution. Welcome to the bunker, Andrew Blick. Good to be here. Thank you. Andrew, you start from the position that the mechanisms for upholding constitutional standards in this country have been shown to be inadequate. But before we get into what is wrong, can we start with what is right? What are the benefits of a constitution that is not codified? The benefits of of the kind of system we've got are well rehearsed, I think overstated, but I think they are nevertheless significant and we need to engage what they are. One is that the system is flexible, that when needed to, it can adjust quite rapidly. I suppose a good example of that is during times of major public emergency, for instance, in both world wars, the, the system of the UK, the constitutional system of the UK was able to adapt very quickly and, and enable politicians to do what was required to actually fight the wars. And some would hold that the fact that, that the UK was on the winning side in both those wars was to some measure, although obviously not wholly attributable to that flexibility. So there's that. And, and the system's also adjusted in many ways over the decades and centuries. For instance, being able to adapt to a continuously expanding franchise between 1832 and, and 1928, where you go from a tiny number of people having the vote to everybody, male and female alike, who's an adult, pretty much having the vote. And, and the system got there without a revolution as such, uh-huh. without major disruption. So that, that's, that's one of the things that tells it to be advantageous. So there's a sort of there's a sort of flexibility to it. There's a lack of rigidity that means it's it's muscular but more responsive to emergency circumstances. Exactly, emergencies and and changing values and the need to adapt to things such as the rise of democracy. And I suppose also along that is the argument that by having the flexible system we've got, politicians regulate themselves. And some would hold that seen as being a bit more democratic in that politicians are elected or at least are held accountable by those we elect in Mm. the House of Commons in Parliament and that therefore things get resolved politically, whereas in a different kind of system, a more codified system, you might find that the courts are being involved more often in resolving political disputes. And some would say that from a democratic perspective, that's not ideal because courts aren't elected they're not democratically accountable in the same way as politicians are. Mm. There's another point. And I suppose a, a, a final point, if I may, is that having slight nebulosity, if there's such a word as that, around the Constitution, not always being able to precisely pin down 
what it is, although that, that can be criticised, and I suspect we'll come to that, also brings certain advantages in that if we actually tried to set down in clear writing what the real core principles of the system were, we'd end up spending our whole time arguing about what they should be yeah, yeah. and uh, never actually get it done. Now, the book originated, unless this is a devilish coincidence, from a report you two co-authored for the Constitutional Society in 2019, warning of all these tensions being there and of what you called the gradual fraying of the constitutional norms. What was it like to watch Johnson sweep into power and basically turn into reality every single warning that you had expressed? Well, sometimes it's not always pleasant to be proved correct. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, I mean, we weren't the only people who were noticing there was a problem here, but we certainly, I think, dug down a bit further into what are the key things that we can expect of politicians where are the written rules in as far as we have them and how do we actually measure that? And I think what, what struck us was that actually there was a real measurability here that although we do have this tacit set of rules to some extent, actually there are things we know about, there are things we can expect, and we were seeing them one by one really being demolished. Mm. Was the book in part a long mea culpa for Hennessy or has he always been aware that bad men are the Achilles heel of the good chap theory, as it were. Well, I suppose it's, it's implicit in the name that, you know, good chaps, if you've got bad chaps, then then you've got a problem. I can't speak for Peter precisely about that, but I think we, we're always clear that this system never functioned perfectly. Uh-huh. It wasn't the best possible system in the best of all possible worlds, but nevertheless, it was the way in which things were believed to work and to an extent, at times, did work. People often, you know, there often there are there have been previous problematic prime ministers. Mm, you can mm. find that in the work of Hennessy, someone like Anthony Eden. Yeah. His conduct around Suez, you can say, was was far from ideal, and in a sense, violated those principles. I suppose one difference was there was there was a maybe a quite high cost for Eden. Although you could argue there's been a cost for Johnson as well. So we, we could come back to yeah. that. But I think there was a sense that there was more flagrant departure from these rules going on. So that exposed the weakness was there. But I think, you know, it's never worked entirely. But I think what is important about the good chaps principle is that, and by the way, we we think probably it's time to discard that particular phrase because of the... Uh, Yes, bad men and good chaps, yes, exactly. exactly. And in a way, the fact that 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 phrase existed shows that it, it does belong to the past yeah. along with the terminology. Yeah. But I think what, what it does speak to, if you kind of park that that particular terminology, is that we do, in any system, whether it's unwritten constitution, written constitution, whatever, you do need people in positions of power to be able, to some extent, to self-regulate, to put the wider good uh, ahead of their own narrow, immediate, mm. personal or partisan interests. And you see that, for instance, in the US, which has got a written constitution, but has huge problems if you've got p- people in positions of power who, for instance, want to deny an election result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What we're can you we're do? seeing that play out. Yeah. So it's still a really important principle, but one which has be- been challenged perhaps in new and more intense ways in recent years. Yeah. And, and, and as you say, we've seen you know Blair do questionable things, Cameron do questionable things. But it seems to me that things really ramped up 
during the Theresa May years, and I think your original report sort of hints at that. Um, so Johnson may have been the nadir, but he wasn't the the start of it. And I just wonder if Brexit acted as a sort of catalyst that speeded up this, I, I'm, I'm going to use the finance te- term, this stress test um, of the constitution effectively. Well, absolutely. I think uh, I'm glad you said Brexit. We're, you know, we're not the BBC here. <laughs> we're, we're comfortable talking about it. Yeah. And I think it's where a lot of these things it's the focal point. It's not the whole of the story by any means, but it's 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 the focal point for a lot of these issues. For one thing, it involves a referendum, which, yes, we've had referendums. We've been having them on major issues since 1973. But when a referendum goes the way that almost certainly the majority of elected politicians, including the majority of conservative politicians, probably even now, would rather it hadn't gone, and you have this decision of such immense magnitude, which nobody really understands all it means, whatever position you take on it, nobody knew everything that was going to be involved in it, taken in the face of actually what most politicians would want to happen. Mm. You've got a problem there. You've got a, ch- you've got a real attention between a direct democracy model and a representative democracy model. We're more familiar with a representative democracy model in, in, in our system. Yeah. That's the one that works most of the time. It was really being challenged. And then added to that, it also elevates certain people within the political system and gives them more power. And one of those people, as we know, is Boris Johnson, who in, in other circumstances probably wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near the top job, but are because of the desperate political situation the Conservative Party finds itself in yeah. in the middle of 2019. So it creates these tensions, it creates this disruption, and it also brings to power people who were in some ways the cause of that tension and disruption and gives them an opening to pursue some of these questionable methods. Yeah, yeah. We, we will talk about Johnson in more detail, but I want to bring up Liz Truss, um, who I hear you ask. Um, <laughs> she didn't want to appoint an ethics advisor, and she effectively prayed in aid the good person theory. She said that what we needed was a period of restoring trust by having people in high office behave well, not because they were under supervision, but because they understood the importance of behaving well. Does she have a point? Absolutely. In an ideal world, you do want people to behave well. But it's interesting to ask why now is so much of our political debate focused on things like the ministerial code? and the advisor who's supposed to play a part in advising on the ministerial mm, code. Mm. And that's because, and I think this comes back to the long-term point, this is about more than just Brexit, that over a period of decades, really, we see more and more of these kind of rules and regulations actually being written down, actually being codified. We haven't gone all the way to a codified constitution yet, but we have moved towards writing more of these things down, publishing them where previously they were internal documents only, and even appointing advisors and officials whose job it is to to try and uphold them. So I think, in a sense, we're already past that point. The fact that we had to do all of those things suggests there was already a breakdown in trust, that Mm. we couldn't rely on people to behave themselves. And then once you remove them, as is the case with with trust, well, we we saw what happened. And I think what's interesting there is that the trust experience shows there's also a connection between these kind of rules and regulations and standards that uh, politicians might find irritating and restricting and actual policy outcomes that actually cutting corners bypassing rules isn't necessarily such a clever thing to do if it leads you into taking disastrous decisions but yeah i think 
we've already gone past the point where we could just rely on people behaving themselves alone. We mm. need backups. How does the monarchy interact with standards? My concern is that it provides a sort of illusory check that can never be exercised and is never exercised. And yet I always see people on social media saying the monarchs would refuse X, the monarchs would say no to Y. And so does something there need to be tweaked in order to sort out the standards in our public life? Because it feels like it dilutes blame somehow that, that you know, the monarch becomes implicitly complicit in, a, in anything that's going on. Well, I think that's absolutely right. There's this kind of idea that the monarch's got these reserve powers. And I think it was uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson who said, I've only got one power, i.e. Uh, to launch a nuclear attack, and I can never use it. And I think in a way it's the same with the monarchy that uh, – that they've got those reserve powers, but the again the implicit understanding, and it's written to some of the doc, it's written in the cabinet manual, is that politicians have got a responsibility to keep the monarchy away from party political controversy, and that's how the system needs to work. You have to have politicians, and again, this is self-regulation, who want to keep the monarch out of controversy. Now, mm. actually, that's worked fairly well in the past. Whatever one thinks about, you know, the merits of a monarchy versus some kind of different kind of head of state that's worked fairly well in the past but again i think and that that really signals the problems of the johnson years that yeah. one of the first things that happens is he takes this decision around prorogation of parliament that does bring the monarch and the monarch's powers into that realm of uh, of uh, party political controversy that then raises the questions do we need more protections do we need a better firewall between the monarchy and the political system that ensures that kind of thing, that kind of loophole isn't exploited again. But absolutely, I think to expect a monarch, whether it's the, the previous monarch or the present one, to really assert themselves is just not reasonable. And also, would, would we actually want that to be happening? I don't think so. You mentioned the prorogation um, case. So what about the role courts play in safeguarding the standards? They've been accused of judicial overreach by people who are unhappy with that sort of decision. Is there some truth to that? Because they're effectively stretching, they're, they're trying to polyfiller the cracks as they appear. And, and that does lead them to overreach. Well, I, th I think certainly the role of the courts in big political disputes has increased over a number of, again, this is a long-term tendency, But I think we need to ask ourselves the question, why has this happened? Is it because the courts have this cunning plan to take over the political system and subvert democracy and impose their own uh, values on the system and second guess the decisions of policymakers? Or have they actually been drawn into this, this political arena almost despite themselves? If you think about the rise of judicial review from the 1960s onwards, that's partly because governments have increasingly relied on statutory instruments on secondary legislation, which the courts are allowed to challenge, rather than acts of parliament. If you think about things like the Human Rights Act, which involves the courts in making decisions about adherence to the European Convention on Human mm. Rights, mm. that's because parliament passed an act, the Human Rights Act, requiring them to do this. So, it's, And if you think more recently, the courts have been drawn into these, these issues because of the behaviour of politicians. 
often the behavior of the very same politicians <laughs> who are complaining in advance about the courts being involved in a power grab. So, so the politicians yeah. outsource difficult stuff yeah. to the court in order yeah. to then blame them for... Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. that makes sense. In many ways, I think the trouble Theresa May had with passing a deal was not, in my view, an aberration, but the system working as it should do for the first time in my memory. And yet, the majority of people on either side of the debate really hated it. So I think if we're going to talk about fixing this stuff, how do we reshape what people expect of democracy, that it is messy and it is a process, rather than some sort of anything-goes majoritarianism? Yeah, well, I think this is an issue actually in in our political culture. Now, I think there are strengths with our system, as we discussed at the beginning. I don't want to be wholly negative about it, but I think in our system, I think this may be, speaking personally, connected to the electoral system we use as well. We do have a winner-takes-all culture, mm. a binary culture, whatever you want to call it, a zero-sum game culture, that either you have all of the power and you get everything you want, or you have none of the power and you don't get anything you want. Mm. And I think that's encouraged by the electoral system we have because uh, a party can win a majority in the House of Commons and get well short of a majority of votes cast. Then they've got all the power. They're in for a while. They get to do what they want. Then at some point they lose power. And the idea that actually this is about trade-offs, this is about giving, so, getting some of what you want in exchange for concessions in other areas doesn't really fit as well, particularly at the Westminster level, perhaps more at devolved level where they have different electoral systems, but not at, not at the Westminster level. And I think that was one of the reasons that in the UK, we found it challenging to be within the context of the European Union, because actually, the UK got so much of what it wanted in European yeah. Union <laughs> negotiations. But this idea that we were somehow ceding some control and had to compromise, perhaps in certain areas, was difficult to to actually reconcile with our system. So I think there is a need for cultural change there. And I think, for me, this isn't in the book, but for me, I think the electoral system needs looking at. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that. Robert Saunders articulates a sort of counter-argument in Prospect magazine. He theorized that Johnson was elected in full knowledge he was a bad chap, that this was a feature, not a bug, and that the difference actually was a public and a set of colleagues that enabled, tolerated, and excused his abuses. Does he have a point? Oh, absolutely. I think that it was well known many, many decades in advance what Johnson was. If you want to get the book, there's a word I'm not going to use uh, in this <laughs> podcast that John Major used uh, when expressing surprise yeah. in the early 90s that Johnson had been... Uh, been put on the candidates list for the Conservative Party. There's no question that that Johnson was known to be like this, and it wasn't wasn't he was elevated despite being like this. In, in when some extent it was, but also for some people he was elevated because he was like that. That yeah. was part of his attraction for some voters. I, I mean, no I, I wonder if that yeah. creates a sort of democratic conundrum. Yeah. In that, if someone is elected in order to sort of smash constitutional yeah. norms, yeah. do they have a mandate to do that? Well, I, I, you know, it, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the question is, do we, when we elect people once every four or five years, do we vest absolute power in them, coming back to your uh, Lord Acton point, 
or do we vest limited power in them? And I think the latter. I think mm-hmm. we wouldn't want to say that just because you happen to win an election three or four years ago or, or a previous prime minister won the election who you took over from, you can do whatever you want. I think I would definitely push back against that notion because then you are veering into what we call rather than democracy you're talking about populist majoritarianism Mm. and if you look at some of the earlier writings of johnson his journalism which we talk about in the book he talks about in in the early uh in early 2000s he writes a piece about berlusconi in which he makes exactly those kind of arguments about berlusconi says well he's won the election therefore he should be able to get on with it and the only people who can get rid of him are the electorate at the next election, but in the meantime, he has to be given given you know freedom to do what he wants. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. So we circle yeah. back again to the winner takes all yeah. mentality. Yeah. Some people claim that the fact Johnson tried to test constitutional limits and failed and was thrown out actually proves that our norms and guardrails are very effective and, and that our institutions work. And actually, there's a similar debate in the United States about Trump. Is there merit to that argument? I think certainly we do have these self-correction mechanisms. In the end, they worked. My first kind of pushback on that point would be first that, as we will discuss, the fact that he was allowed in at all was a failure. And you need, you know, you, we may not like it, but elites need to do some of the work. They need to filter out the wrong ones, as you might call them, mm. and stop them from getting in in the first place. So the elite level kind of checks and balances had already failed when he came to power. And I think that might be a shift. I wonder whether in an earlier time or in a non-Brexit context, he would have got in at all. Mm, That's the first point. Second, it did take quite a long while before he was actually removed. I mean, let's not forget, he was found to have broken the law. He was found to have broken criminal law and he didn't resign at that point. And after all, the, another person in the same government the chance exchequer has found to have broken the criminal law at that point is now prime minister. So he wasn't got rid of then. The point at which he was actually removed was when it became increasingly apparent that he had become an electoral liability. So mm, his party mm. got rid of him because they were looking at some kind of electoral wipeout. Now, is that the system working or is that politicians continuing to behave in a very self-interested way, which yeah. obviously they're always going to do that. Yeah. To some is it Fine. the system yeah. working or is it a close call that, that yeah. should be an alarm, yeah. an alarm yeah. uh, wake-up call? How do you propose fixing the, pro- the problem? I know this is a v- complex answer. Mm. The, the book concentrates on, I think, it's fair to say, on giving a menu of options. Yeah. Um, yeah. a, a sort of a, a royal commission, a parliamentary inquiry, yeah. a speakers' conference, a citizens' convention. Yeah. Do you lean towards one in particular as a sort of just personal instinctive choice? Well, I think it, it's useful to think about there, there are different degrees of fix. There's some immediate things on, on the immediate agenda, proposals made by the Committee on Standards and Public Life that would strengthen, for instance, the ministerial code and give the advisor a statutory basis so that whoever holds the role in future, if we get someone holding the role, they've got more power, more independence than the Prime Minister. So those, those immediate fixes that could be done quite quickly, that mm. could be implemented either by the current prime minister or whoever, you know, whenever there's a different prime minister in. So it's those things. It's the slightly longer term things that, for instance, one of the things we talk about is an oath of office for an incoming prime minister, that prime minister could be required to speak an open office in the House of Commons in the presence of the speaker saying that they will uphold these standards. So that's the one thing. Then the third thing which, which you're alluding to is 
a more major constitutional overhaul that might look at ways in which we can entrench rules so we can make certain rules so important that even Parliament, by its normal voting procedures, can't simply overturn them. And I think really to make that work, to really make that stick in the contemporary environment, we would need a preparatory exercise that would probably be carried out by you know politicians, by experts, but also it would need some kind of legitimation. Personally, I, I'm not too keen on referendums, but I think some kind of citizens convention, perhaps with members of the public chosen at random, like the kind of thing they've used a lot, for instance, in the Republic of Ireland in recent yeah, years. With very good results. Yeah. Well, exactly. It can't do all of the work, but I think it can help with that legitimization mm. that I think would be essential if we're going to embark on this. And let, you know, I'm I'm not underplaying the the ambitious nature of that kind of an exercise, but maybe it's the time to start thinking about that seriously. Yeah, I, I was reading a book on them recently, and it's it's really quite remarkable how sensible and practical the recommendations that come out of a sort of citizens' convention yeah. are if the if the uh, citizenship is representative, as it were. One final question. Have you thought about practical steps going forward, about sort of moving the book from vision to campaign? Or is that for someone else? You, you put the ideas out there and it's for someone else to pick them up and run with them. Well, I'm certainly available to provide anyone who, who wants my advice. Uh, uh, you know, it, uh, on I'm on the end of an email. If anyone wants to talk to me, that you know, I'm happy to talk to them. I have you know various conversations with people behind the scenes. There are things that you can't, in a way, plan for. You know, moving of the of the of the of the, the plates. Who's going to be in a particular position at a particular time? I think what we want to do is at least get these ideas out there and shift perception a bit and make people realize there is a problem but there are things that can be done about it uh, beyond that you know well talking to people such as yourself it's good to, to know that there are people out there who want to discuss these things but in the end yeah, we talk we think we write i totally respect politicians they've got a very difficult job but i'm hoping to through these kind of contributions we can at least encourage them to put these ideas into the mix and maybe realize that actually some of these rules however annoying they might be actually protect them from making enormous errors of the type we've seen recently. Mm. Professor Andrew Blake, thank you for your time and for your clarity. A pleasure. Remember, there's a new bunker every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And if you want more unashamedly geeky analysis like this, you can support us on the funding platform Patreon from as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You will get every podcast early and with no ads. I leave you with the words of Lord Acton because the fuller extract deserves attention. Historic responsibility has to make up for the want of legal responsibility. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more when you superadd the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. There is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented with Alex Andreu. The producers were Alex Rees and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. 
The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.